Get the best odds on all the big games this March. Download the Circa Sports Iowa app today. Yo, it's another episode of the Cyclone Fanatic podcast. It's Monday morning. It's Victory Monday on football and random things. Of course, football and random things is brought to you by our friends at Wiffles Hybrids. When you plant Wiffles, you're not just choosing superior seed corn. You're making a statement, one that says staying independent, staying family owned means something to your farm. So make your choice. Plant your independence. Plant Wiffles. Jeff, I like to think of football on random things as uh, is, is our version of, uh, of planting seeds. We're planting seeds in everyone's minds so that they can grow into football geniuses. Uh, so thanks to our friends at Wiffles Hybrids for being the presenting sponsors of football on random things. We got a lot to talk about today, Jeff Woody. It's, it's been a long time coming, my man. Oh. What's the what is it that Kendrick says at the beginning? The first song on his new album, I uh, I've been going through something, and then he has the number of days. We've been going through something for a long time, and uh, now the Cyhawk Trophy's back in names. What a what a stressful game, man! What a stressful game, like that. Uh, it's the same. Like this game was the same as last last. This game was almost identical to last year. The difference. At least, uh, I mean, to me, the difference is that Iowa State won because there was still the the dumb stuff that shouldn't happen that only happens against Iowa, you know, like and to their credit, they always take advantage. They always seem to take advantage of it, like the interception that was thrown where either and it looked like Jalen Noel ran the wrong route, but it's conceivable that he ran the right route and Decker's thought he was running the wrong route. But either way, one of the two mess it up. Against every other team in America, that ball skips out of bounds. But against Iowa, that ball happens to get picked off. Like it just always, the weird stuff happens. And again, to their credit, it's because they're in the right spot. They can take advantage of that. But Iowa State happened to win this game. And that, that 99-yard drive is going to go down in the history books as one of those, where were you when you, you know, in the Cyhawk series, it's like the Jake, not tip. There's the net and field goal to win the game in, in recent memory. There's the double overtime or the, the triple overtime, James white touchdown. And there's this, like there's, those are the ones in like the last 10 years where it's like, all right, those are things that I remember, you know, exactly where that was going on. So man, it was, that game was stressful because Iowa state really did their best to give that to one back. The game. Yeah. Yeah. But at the end, they finally were like, okay, maybe we should just try to get in the end zone instead, which we, man. It was funny because, so this was like the, I'm not going to dwell on this because it, it doesn't matter, but this was like so predictable, dude. I think I maybe even told you this on Friday when we, or Thursday when we did radio or whatever, there were just like so many things stacking up for Iowa fans to have excuses for why they lost the football game. And like, I knew that that was exactly how it was going to go. If they lost the game, I got back Saturday night and I'm talking to some of my Iowa fan friends and they're like, uh, they're like, well, you know, you got the penalty where they where Hunter Deckers got pushed out of bounds, the fumble at the goal line, all these different kinds of things. And I was like, yo, for seven years, all of those things win against Iowa State every year. And even even in this game, those things they, went the other way. A lot. Because like uh, that, uh, that personal foul penalty that got them into field goal range to be able to miss the kick at yeah. as time expired. 
as best I understand, I haven't listened to anything Brent said, and Brent being the officiating expert have a better idea on this. But to my understanding, the reason why that was called a personal foul was because it made, it retained it being an offensive drive. Had it been a change of possession, other players are allowed to come on the field. So yeah. with, that, with that being a fourth down stop, that would have meant that it's a change of possession, which means the sideline can come out there and you can be hype and celebrate and stuff like that. Now, granted, you might have still gotten God an excessive forbid we have a little discretion, though. I mean, they thought they'd won the game. I know. And again, there's that there is, I guess I was talking to my father-in-law cause I did um, color for Drake uh, on Saturday and I'm going to do it for all the, the Drake home games this year. So I didn't get home on ESPN plus yeah, to ESPN plus ESPN three Drake Bulldogs. Um, but the, I didn't get home until like four ish, five o'clock ish. And so it was already halftime. So it's watching it on a delay. I had my phone off, like no spoilers. And I remember telling my father-in-law that, it's almost, a, I mean, after the game was won and you got to like run around the house a little bit, I remember saying that it's almost a good thing that that penalty was called because it kind of negates that excuse, that built-in excuse of saying, well, the officials gave it to you. Well, mm-hmm. the officials tried to give it to you. You just didn't take advantage of it. So yeah, it's, it, yeah. it's, yeah, there, that, that excuse is thrown out the window with that 15-yard penalty put him in field goal range. Well, and then too, I mean, even on that 99-yard drive, which we need, I think we need to talk in depth about that draft because it was it felt like a a moment for iowa state football especially in this rivalry where it was probably the first time that you sat there and were like man they just lined up toe to toe for 100 yards and kicked their ass and i don't know if we've ever seen them do that before and what's funny about that though is that that was the entire point of last year's team yeah you know it's big tight ends it's jared russ it's charlie it's chase it's Brees Hall, it's, uh, you know, an offensive line that's heavier than they've been in a long time. And you got Brock Purdy, who's generally going to be making pretty good decisions. Like you, that is what the entire point of last year's offense was, is to be able to play bully ball. Well, this is the, this year's team actually did it, you know, and they're not necessarily built to do that. They're capable of doing that clearly, but they're not necessarily built to do that. Um, I would say another like super shout out, Trevor Downing was the best offensive lineman on the field. Mm-hmm. It was everything that you needed for in the interior of that defensive line. He, he gave you, I mean, everything was set up. I mean, gyro Brock at hundred yards. I don't know how many other running backs throughout the season are going to have a hundred yards on the Iowa defense. The only ones that will are probably going to be teams like, you know, uh, let's say a, a Minnesota Wisconsin. or Wisconsin or something like that, or even in games where the offense is so bad and the opposing team isn't turning it over. Like Iowa State, again, they they gave the ball back way too many times. But an opposing team that eventually, like the dam, like Dockerman said, like the dam is going to break at some point. You put them out there, eight play drive, punt it, then go three and out, then eight play drive and three and out, eight play drive. And I mean, eventually they're going to get too fatigued for it to to work. So like Gyro Brock in hundred yards, that's going to be a dime. You know, not a dime a dozen. It's going to be like a dime every twelve cents. Like that is a really a uh, rare thing to have happen because the offensive line did it really well in the 99 yard drive. Like dude, that in the middle of that drive too, you're thinking you cannot come away with a field goal. Yeah. A, an 18 play field goal drive. Especially after they'd taken like 10 minutes off of the clock. It, yeah. You're you a 12 minute drive. Like you, you have to come away yeah. with a touchdown there. But then that's why I say too, like, I obviously got into six third downs on that drive. 
and converted all of them and really never even looked like it was never a situation where you you were like even that nervous that they weren't going to convert one frankly you know and uh that's where you know and then the penalty happened down inside the 20 where and that was first and 10 so it's like you can't act like it extended the drive you know it's it's first down and that's where i don't know that some of those things but with that drive man i mean you mentioned trevor downey and i was listening to ben bruns this morning uh in the reaction podcast that he did on uh on iowa everywhere and he was talking about what Trevor was able to do in mitigating Jack Campbell's impact on the game. I mean, you look at the numbers, you know, Jack had nine total tackles, five solo stops and a quarterback hurry. I'm going to guess that was the least productive game Jack Campbell has had in a very long time. Especially uh, with how many it, plays were, I mean, let me look at how many total snaps, uh, total plays, 79 total plays. And he had nine tackles. There was a point For your middle linebacker. Looked, right. There was a point when I looked at the uh, time of possession. I mean, it had to have been like right after that last Iowa State's really long drive. And it was in it was in the fourth quarter. And maybe we even was like right. The, no, I remember what happened. Okay. I'm going to tell a story right now. I went to the bathroom between the third and the fourth quarter. I'm waiting in the line at the urinal. You know how it goes. You know, you everybody's everybody's doing their thing. People coming and going. Jamie Pollard walks in, walks up next to me. And I looked at him. I was like man, it's a good one so far. And he's like, uh, he's like, yeah, nobody wants to win it. And then I was like, yeah, well, this next quarter should be fun. And he looks at me, he goes, that defense has been out there for a long time. And I was like, I thought about it for a second. I was like, man, yeah, you're right. Like they have been out there for a long time. I look at the numbers. Iowa State's defense or Iowa's defense had been on the field twice as long as Iowa State's defense had been. And by the time that that drive started getting towards the very end, you could see that those guys were exhausted, like had been out there way too long, had had way too much put on them at that point. And they knew that everything was probably going to come down to this because they were just tired. And even on the, on the big 10 broadcast, their, their uh, sideline reporter popped up out of nowhere and was like, Hey, like Iowa's defense needs to get off the field. Now these guys have, have no depth. They can't withstand this level of having to be on the field for this amount of time. And that's where when you say the dam breaking, like, I think Iowa State was just able to wear that defense out across 40 minutes of being on the football field. And I think one of the, I mean, you talk about just individual players. You can't talk about this game and not talk about Xavier Hutchinson. And one of the things that's amazing, and I think he probably took that as a personal challenge of going up against Riley Moss as a first team All-American. Yeah. And I like. I still like, think Riley Moss is a terrific defensive back, but they picked on that side, not early in the game all the time. Like they weren't throwing at 33 a ton and Riley's probably the best in the, in the country might be the best run fitting corner. And he's really good in pass coverage, but they wanted to throw at him by the time they got tired because Iowa doesn't rotate defensive backs. Basically the same five guys are going to play the entire time. You got two and a half safeties, depending on how you qualify Cooper Jean. So like, you have two and a half safeties and two corners, and those guys are going to play 90% of the snaps. So you get Xavier Hutchinson running your ass up and down the field, bring in somebody else, have them run you up and down the field, bring X back onto the field, and now you've taken 20 full speed, absolute dead sprint snaps in a row with no break, and then that guy has actually gotten a break. Of course he's going to win. And they went, like, whenever they needed anything, they'd say, where's number eight? And I'm going to I'm going to put it on his back shoulder and let him go make a play. 
And most of the time he did. And there was, you know, the, one of the times when they were driving, at least on camera left to right, I remember they threw one over his head on the outside and like, he still almost made like a diving over the shoulder play. And it's just because they said, all right, we know that we are in better shape than you because we're rotating. And we know that our guy can put it in a place where our, our receiver can go get it. And we're just going to have X go do it. So I think it was, I mean, it was really impressive, especially, you know, on that suit that the 99 yard drive of the six third downs, four of the third down conversions went to number eight. When, when we need something where, where is, where is X? We got to find him right now. So that's a, it was kind of an indication of, you know, this is, this was a stress test of what is this offense going to become later in the year when you do start getting into more pressure situations, not just in Iowa city against Baylor in a couple of weeks, or when you're playing Oklahoma state or you're playing Texas who look pretty good. Like when you're playing these better teams, what is going to be the, you know, who are the guys that are going to rise to the top to replace those who, who had gone last year. And we knew it was going to be that we knew that eight was going to be good. We just didn't know he was going to be this good. I don't think it certainly wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for Iowa State on on Saturday, uh, and we'll get to some of those negative things here in a minute. But uh, I think that throw you were you were talking about that they made to X on the far sideline, and I, I thought the color commentator on the game I don't, I don't know who that guy was. Uh, they had an up and down day, him and Brandon Godden, but uh, he made a point on that play where he said, you know. Iowa is forcing Iowa State to have to utilize every blade of grass on the football field to be able to put some of these. And he's like, and Hunter Deckers has done it damn near every time. Put the ball exactly where it needed to be. And that's what I thought the next thing, the next thing we can talk about. I thought Hunter, you know, he had the two, you know, had the two interceptions. The first one was definitely his fault. The second one, up for debate. He says it was his fault. I think that if you watch the, copy again and see the play again it's probably hard to say that it was his fault but it is what it is uh you can see the impact that hunter's ability to throw the football and the stress of that that puts on a defense it's been a long time since i've seen iowa state's offense push safeties back the way that they did to iowa already and that's what i mean you look at what gyrell was able to do Iowa couldn't can like commit that many people to the run game on any given play because they knew that 12 could throw the ball to every part of the football field and and hurt them for it. You know, if, if you haven't been to a game in if you, if you didn't get to go to either the game against SEMO or against Iowa in person, and you have the capacity to get to a game in person this year, it's, it's different. How fast, how much ball speed Deckers has, it's different, man. Like you, you, you see it on TV and you're like, Oh, that's a pretty good throw. But like the camera angle doesn't really show yeah. how little air some of these, like, like there are some, it's sometimes he's throwing uh, it's an out route or something or like a swing pass, something like that, like Jirel or somebody in the, or Eli Sanders out of the backfield. And it kind of looks from again, from the camera angle, that's more above the game than it is even with the field that it kind of looks like it's just a normal pass. But even those, I mean, that ball, like if, if he's throwing a swing pass, if he releases the ball, cause he's what six, three, his arms above his head. If he releases that ball, at seven feet off the ground. It's peak height is probably seven foot six, you know, like mm -hmm. it is an absolute missile. And I think the difference, so there's three general types of throws that quarterbacks that you can bucket 
quarterback play into there's uh, and they'll talk about it as one ball two ball and a three ball the one ball is 99 mile an hour fastball like it is that ball it's that ball where it releases seven feet peak is seven foot six like it is you're trying to throw a dart that's your slants you're throwing an out route then there's the three ball which is like it's the that that looper that he threw to x the one that he almost caught uh and it's actually the one that he threw an interception on like that was a three ball it's that kind of big loopy down the field, Russell Wilson, moon ball. Then there's the two ball, and that's the hardest one to throw because it still has to have pace, but you have to turn that thing over. It's what <clears throat> when, like the ones that he would throw to Jalen Noel across the middle where it's he's standing at eight yards behind the line of scrimmage. The pass is completed at 15, 16 yards down the line or down from the line of scrimmage. So he's throwing the ball almost 30 yards, uh, but – it, and so it has to get over linebackers, but you got to get there fast be, so he doesn't close into the safeties. And the arm talent to execute a two ball is really, really impressive because you got to take a ton of control to get it there. So like, it is it is a different level of of zip that mm-hmm. Deckers has on the ball. And it, I mean, that is, I think the other thing that again I say it all the time is timing and ball placement beat any coverage. When you get the ball out on time, which he does really quickly, back foot gets in the ground, it's gone. And if he does hold it, he's going, where is my safety outlet that I need to get out of here? I know that, okay, so in certain fronts, I would play like a a guy that's head over the nose or even a shade on the center and then put two other defensive linemen on one side of the, on the same side. So basically you have three linemen on one side and one on the other because they want to be able to run like stunts and stuff. And it's hard to pick up when guys are crossing your face. So I know that I'm probably going to have an outlet to the one person side. So if there's a pass rush, I'm likely going to be able to escape that way. So as I stay downfield and in the back of his mind, he kind of knows where he can get out if he has to get out. And even then he's not trying to like hold onto it and hold onto it and hold onto it. And, you know, try and hit a home run shot is as soon as he gets out of the pocket, he's going, where's the safest, quickest way that I can get this thing out to try and get it moving down the field. So it is, it's a different thing that he's got. Now, again, decision-making is still pretty good, but like that interception was one. And I'm, again, I think having a new quarterback, it's nice that everything wasn't perfect. You know, mm-hmm. you played against a good defense and for the most part, you played pre- re- like impressively well, but you also did some dumb shit like that throw in the end zone. That was a, a bad read and a bad re- and a bad throw and a bad read on the same play. Like in film, I don't, again, I don't know how the kid's motivated, but if he's a, a kid that's that is a competitor, like I think he is, he probably doesn't need to be yelled at. He probably you can probably just show that in slow motion and go, Hunter, what are you doing? And just let it let it run. And just that is going to sink in and go, I can't do that. Like, I can't make that throw. I can't put it in that put the things in that danger. So the more you get throughout the season, the more those mistakes should be cleaned up so they don't happen down the road. The back-to-back play sequence that he had during the second quarter where he threw a deep out to the opposite sideline uh, to Aiden Bitter, who caught it on his tiptoes, falling out of bounds. Hell of a catch. Props Aiden Bitter. Props to Aiden Bitter. Also, I mean, dude, I watched that throw like seven times. I mean, he threw it in literally the only place that it could have been caught and not been impeded by a defensive back. Uh, But then not only that, but you complete that catch – while Iowa and all the fans are losing their minds about the fact that they thinking that it needs to be reviewed, 
Iowa State's hustling up to the line, getting set, snapping the ball, and then he drops one in the bucket right on like the four-yard line to Xavier Hutchinson on a back shoulder fade. Again, where literally no one besides a wide receiver could catch the football, and X had to make a pretty incredible catch to be able to do it. But they were able to take advantage of the fact that Iowa had half their defensive units standing around looking, waiting to see if they were going to review the play before that. And that was like one of those moments where I was like, man, they didn't end up scoring on that drive. I think that was the one where they – maybe they kicked the field goal. I can't remember for sure. Or it was the one where Jirel fumbled at the goal line. But uh, that back-to-back sequence to me, I was like, that's it right there. That's like big-time quarterbacking. You know, in those back-to-back throws, that was a perfect encapsulation of what his ability is. And I don't know. I that After that happened, I was like, man, that right there is perfect. I got to write that down because those ones, we got to bring that up. It was really impressive. Again, just really impressive offensive performance, except for the dumb stuff. Like, yeah. other than the dumb things that happen, or the just whether it's dumb or unlucky or you know whatever it is, other than the dumb stuff, Iowa State's offense did exactly what they needed to and wanted to do against arguably the best defense in the Big Ten and one of the top three or four defenses in the country. So, if you can continue that and remove the dumb stuff, this offense is going to be really hard to stop throughout the year. Because I don't know, if you're looking at film, I don't know necessarily what your expectations of slowing this offense down are. Because I would imagine you say, okay, we got to, let's put extra, we're going to put extra effort towards stopping number eight. And what's uh, what's working in Iowa State's favor is X is really good off the press too. So like one of the things, if you want to disrupt rhythm offenses is you can just disrupt the rhythm by either moving the quarterback off a spot and heating them up, which a lot of times the ball's gone too early. Then that blitz just takes a coverage guy out of the way. Or the other thing you can do is uh, you can add pressure to the wide receiver. So you can press him or you can rotate someone over right underneath what he's doing. to so just like throw off what he's going to be doing. Well, X is really good against the press too. So like you're going to have to double cover him and you might have to do a, a like a bracket coverage where somebody's close and somebody's playing back off of him. So you're going to have to play extra, a, extra attention, but then you got guys like Jalen Knoll. And then you got guys like uh, Deshaun Hanneke and he didn't really have a reception in the game, but you have the capacity to execute elsewhere. But then I, I still think like, you know, I tweeted about, about the game, like, Deckers and X and the defense are going to get all the highlights, but Jirel Brock, like he is, it is so good to see him execute at the level that he is executing because that is the ultimate counterpunch to what Deckers and X do is if, mm-hmm. if Jirel can run like that. And a lot of that was like a lot, of it was really well blocked, you know, like it's, it's the thing that I talked about with like Brees, where you look up, you kind of, you look down, it's like, like a muddle pile of nothing. And you're like, Wait, that was six yards like that. That's a good offensive line play. It's a good running back core to get coordinating the offensive line. But there's also stuff like him just breaking tackles like yeah. he's taking a one on one opportunity and making a one yard gain into a four yard gain, which against really good defense is a huge deal. And by him being able to do that, that forces what you normally would want to do of playing that bracket coverage on X, playing extra blitzing extra people or perhaps dropping people into different passing lanes. It runs, it, it moves that capacity to do that away from what teams want to do. So, like Jirel playing off of X and Hunter and Jalen Knoll, 
it it takes this offense to be much more balanced and much more functional against whatever the defense is going to throw at it. So like, again, we got, we're going to talk about the mistakes and why they happened and why they need to not happen. But if you were to able to remove those, the offense played, it did exactly what you need it to do against a really good defense from top to bottom. Yeah. Jay and I were texting about gyro last night and I, you know, I think the thing that's so impressive about him or that jumps out at you his strength, man, he's so strong at, at, when he's running in it, you know, the way that people, you know, I compared it to, he's not, he doesn't have the small space elusiveness that David did, David Montgomery did, but man, the way people just bounce off of him reminds me of David where David just had that uncanny ability where if someone hit him, they would just fall off. Jirel has that a little bit, you know, where if you try and hit him in the legs, like they're just going to fall, you're just going to bounce off of him, you know? And you can see where him being a fourth year junior, like that's a grown ass man, you know, out there running the football, even though he hasn't been a starter, he's a grown ass man. And he just is able to run with a uh, toughness and edginess that I think prevents Iowa state's offense from getting soft, even though it spreads the field out and can sling it all over the, all over the yard. Yeah. And, and the way that you have to include anytime you're talking about the running game, you have to include the offensive line. I mean, duh, that group, but, I, I'll say I think that group played as well as I've seen them ever play. Yeah, and and that's without Remsburg, you know? Yeah. Like, that that was a really good offensive line play, and you got four of the five of your starters out there. And I thought the interior, uh, I mean, shoot, all the way across the board. I think, again, I, if there was a, a weak point, it was on it was the right tackle, which, again, is where Remsburg was, is where a lot of the pressure would come from. Mm-hmm. Um but the interior of that offensive line played really, really well for the most part. There was one time, one sack that uh, Hufford got, his footwork was garbage, and he got ragdolled by Luke Van Ness. But every once in a while, you know, you got to, like if you're playing tennis, US Open just got done, like you're playing tennis, every once in a while someone's going to serve one by you. And you just got to be like, all right, well, Let's switch sides and call it good. You know, like if you're playing that Iowa defense of every once in a while, something's going to happen. Um, but the cool thing about Jirel and the physicality of the running game is that like that kind of stuff travels, you know, like you take it to Austin, you take it to Norman, you take it to Manhattan, like that kind of stuff travels. It, and you, you can tell a difference between Eli Eli Sanders and Jirel like that's because Eli Sanders is younger. He hasn't been in the weight room as long. And I don't think that his running style is the same where if you get to the point where there's a game where, I mean, it hundred Eckers at some point this and some game this year is going to throw for 400 yards. When you get to that type of game where he's slinging it for four fifteen against a defense that can't keep up. And now they're having to play like drop three deep safeties really far back. They have to pull their linebackers out. Eli Sanders is going to be do really well in that because he's got, he's a guy that likes to operate in open space. But like you were talking about with Jirel, one of the things about running back play is that, I mean, football is, is just about numbers sometimes where how many players are on a field at each time? 11. Okay. So if you are on offense, you have a quarterback who's taking the snap and you're going to give it to the running back quarterbacks, likely not blocking anybody. And the running back is the one holding the ball. So there are two guys that you can't, you physically don't have human beings to block or block with on the offensive side to the defensive side. So as a running back, you got to be responsible for two of them. You're going to have to make a miss or outrun them or 
stiff arm them or run to the ground or take an angle or whatever. You're going to have to do something to those two unblocked defenders. And that's what Jirel is going to do really well is in games like Iowa and in games where you start getting the really physical defenses, you're not going to block everybody. And those guys are going to be in the right spot. So you got to do stuff to take, like I said, like a one yard gain and turn it into a four yard gain, because there is going to be somebody that shows through. You're going to have to take a four yard gain, make somebody miss, get a first down and turn it into 11. Like that's stuff you have to do in order to be an offense, a functional offense against good defenses. So yeah, I think the running game, the offense, generally speaking, I have no issues with on mass. I do have issues with in execution but again, you can learn from those things and it happens early enough in the season and you got to win to escape those bad mistakes that it, it was fairly good. And, and, and again, the defense played really well, but you're also playing against a, just a... Yeah, we're, we'll bad. talk about that in just a minute. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, I'll ask you, or I'm going to say one more thing. The, I knew the offensive line had was kicking some ass when Jirel was running 15 yards down the field. And Jared Hufford was running down and being the one picking him up off of the ground. And I was like, yeah, when the offensive lineman's the first one to the pile, 20, almost 20 yards down the field, you got to have a pretty good feeling that those guys are probably kicking some ass back there, you know? And uh, then what did you see on the fumble at the goal line? What happened there? Um, was it a fluke a, deal? That seemed kind of crazy the way the ball popped up in the air. It's kind of fluky, but at the same time, it's things that you – you need to prepare for. And I had this happen one time. Like it was the West Virginia game, West Virginia game in 2012. I felt horrible about it. It was, we were going into win. I brought it up before. It's the, literally the first time in my entire athletic career that I had a fumble. And what happens in those situations when someone can get the, the people say like, Oh, helmets right on the ball. Well, the only reason someone can get a helmet on the ball is if your elbow, if, excuse me, if your wrist drops. So like when you're going into the end zone, you got to keep either a hand on like two hands on the ball, meaning like and the reason why you have two hands on the ball is because then there's no way it can kind of get jarred up or down is because you're holding your body's holding 50% of the ball. So 50% of the ball is exposed and you got 25% covered by a top arm, 25% by a bottom arm. But when you're trying to run that fast, you can't like shimmy your way all the way through. So you have to take one arm off to get there quickly. But in situations like that, if you're, when you go horizontal, your knuckles almost got to be touching your face mask because then whatever's going to hit you is going to hit the ball into you as opposed to hitting the ball away. So like the reason that ball came out is because his wrist dropped and like that's kind of stuff that he had not how many times on the one yard line did Brees Hall come out? Not very often, not very often. So that's a situation that he probably hadn't been in other than in scrimmages and stuff like that, where it's not that big of a deal and you're not really trying to like, you know, punk your buddies. So that, that pressure cooker of a situation, you, you, it's a little less like a little technical lesson, you know, think about it like a quarterback. If you're trying to throw a ball, you see a guy wide open, you overthrow it. And all of a sudden things 10 yards too far, that same technical thing of if you're in traffic on the end zone or in the, in on the goal line is the only time you're really going to be horizontal to the ground with your shoulder pads three feet from the ground, your wrist has to be way higher. So like, that's a thing he's going to learn. It's fluky in that it happened, but it's not fluky in the way that it's preventable. So like, you're going to watch that film depending on where the angle is from. And you're going to see that like his, his wrist is even with his elbow. And like, that's the kind of stuff. happening. same thing happened with Potterbaum. Like 
the ball, you're going into the end zone, his pad level, I mean, his pads are literally 18 inches off the ground. Mm-hmm. But then with one arm, his elbow and his wrist were even. So like when you get that close to the end zone, your wrist has to be above your elbow the entire time. Like punch yourself in the face mask when you're going to be in that close proximity. And if you get to the point where you get close, you'll see like the person who is really good at it is dating a little bit, but Tiki Barber, when he was younger in his career, had really bad fumbling problems. And then as he got, he was like, wanted to address that because teams were starting to be like, well, we can't give him the ball. So if you watch late in his career, Tiki Barber, you're going to see him. He's again. almost like got his elbows straight out. I remember right. that being a thing. Yeah. And so, but you'll he's you're still able to run with that because like, yeah, one of the hard things about running, you know, like why a lot of times a running back or something like that gets caught is because like try sprinting with one hand, like holding your shirt, like it's just harder. So you can still have some arm motion, but then once you get into like trying to protect the ball, a lot of times people will like, and this might've been what Jirel was doing. Well, I think it was more what Potabom was doing is when you try and protect the ball, then if you like try and, you know, grab your own elbows, you see what you see, how the ball would get horizontal So one of the things that like Tiki Barber would do, and this is just another skill you can do is essentially just like punch yourself in the face and then like grab your own forearm. Like you're, you don't bring your wrist down. So there's stuff that you can do to prevent that. And again, like it's good that they got the win to escape having those mistakes haunt them because how bad would we be feeling for the second year in a row to unarguably outplay Iowa and lose, you know, how bad would that have been for the second year in a row? But it didn't happen. You managed to escape despite those mistakes. And those are learn frumable mistakes. All right. Other two uh, things I wanted to ask you about on the negative side, what the hell happened on the punts? Significant <sighs> concerns about the punts. That was, uh, I was a little, I was especially concerned when the, it got blocked in their formation, lining up one way. And then they lined up that same way again and it got blocked again. What'd you see on those two plays? Um, uh, two things. One, so actually, someone actually asked a question on Twitter about that. I forget the handle, so I apologize. Um, I or Iowa State runs a two-man shield, and the shield uh, for those that aren't super familiar with on a punt team, there's the front line people, which are the ones that are you know there's a snapper and then whoever's standing next to them. And Iowa run runs like ten different fronts where they'll have like whatever. So it's the front line people, whoever they are, and then there's the shield, which are the ones that are kind of standing like four or five yards in front of the punter, which what they're in depending on the scheme either they're responsible for a specific person or they're responsible for whoever comes through like they're the last defense in trying to do that when we were running a punt team and saying <laughs> say what you want about iowa state during the roads tenure they were really good at, we were really good at punting the football because we had mike brantner and then kirby vanderkamp a lot of experience a lot of experience yeah. but uh yeah. hey man just 2013 we we're good for the rest of them but uh the way that that the, who we had back there were offensive linemen and big defensive tackles because you're literally standing there. You're, they describe it as your feet are on a cliff and you can't back up. What Iowa State has back there, Orion Vance is one of the guys that's back there who's a big dude, but like 250 is different than 330. Like we had Carter Bykowski who played tackle for the Falcons and the, and the Vikings as one of the guys there because your job isn't so much to cover. We'll leave coverage to the frontline guys. Your job is to stop anyone who gets through. So Iowa State has a smaller set of guys back there. So what I would, I don't know if this is a thing they normally do. I haven't watched Iowa's punt block team as much. But what Iowa 
essentially said is they kept their, like the four guys that would go get the punt were three defensive linemen and Monty Potabon. Like those are the three or the four guys that they would send. Well, all four of those guys are heavier as heavy or heavier than what Iowa state shield is. So they've got a full, you have a 285 pound dude running full speed over a 250 pound guy who can't go backwards. Like that's naturally a setup that's, that's going to fail. So how do you prevent that? If you still want to have better coverage units, because that's why Orion Vance is out there because once you block, you have to go down and tackle. You go, it's one of the, one of the few units where you switch sides of the ball mid play. So you're going to become an offensive team blocking to a defensive team tackling. Orion Vance is a really good tackler. You want to get someone on the ground, put him out there. So if you still want to maintain that, what your offense, what your frontline guys have to do then is Luke Van Ness is explosive, but Luke Van Ness can't accelerate, stop, and then accelerate and get to my punter before he gets rid of it. So your frontline guys have to adjust to essentially renumber who you're going to be blocking. So I, it's a little disappointing that they didn't get it fixed the second time that it happened. Like it happened the first time. And then the, what should have probably happened is, and it might have happened and they might've executed like poorly executed. I haven't rewatched it. They might've done it and just the player screwed up. But at that point you go, they're only rushing four. we're going to move our, cause you can mo- shorten your splits and widen your splits. However much you want on the front line, you could say, all right, Luke Van Ness, I'm going to go stand directly in front of you. And we're going to let the other, there's four guys that are rushing the the punter. We have seven guys that can potentially go down and cover. We're just going to take four of them and make sure that you don't block the punt and like adjust your splits to do that. So uh, they're 100% addressing that because that uh, you can't get through that unencumbered with a rusher that's especially that big. Most teams don't rush a defensive end to get to the, to the punter. They usually put defensive, like defensive backs, wide receivers, linebackers, people like me at running back and linebacker. Um, that's usually who's going to be on there. The other thing that's true is the operations time has to be faster. Yeah. And that kind of no, take the ball out faster. So operations time being from snap to the time a foot hits the ball. So whether it's field goals or punting operations is go punt. And there's a stopwatch on that every single time. And I, I forget the exact number, but I think it's something like 2.1 seconds is what operations time needs to be like that or faster from the time snap to the ball is gone. Just because if you didn't block anybody and you snap, if you from time the punter caught it to the time it's gone in, you know, 1.5 seconds, Usain Bolt can't go from a standstill, react to a ball moving and run and block a punt in that short a time. So the operations side has to get faster. And freshman punters in high school, that, that doesn't matter. They can take as long as they want. Against SEMO, it doesn't matter. You can take as long as you want. Against Iowa, against the rest of the Big 12, you cannot take that much time. You have to go. Catch, step, go. And so, like, I think all of those things are going to get looked at in the – like, because they actually do have a special teams coach now. Like, they have a person that is a, that is hired to do that. So that they're correct. Again, correctable mistakes that Iowa state is lucky that they got the win in spite of those mistakes. At Whipple's hybrids, we focus on one big thing, developing, producing, and marketing superior corn hybrids. A big part of that is doing all the little things right, no matter how small, to keep our customers coming back. Turns out, the little things aren't so little after all. Wiffle's Hybrids, one thing done right. And all the little things, too. All right, let's flip over talk about the defense. 
Um, this is a difficult conversation, I think, because I you don't want to get too excited about the defense because we know what the situation is with Iowa's offense. But, man, I thought Iowa State's defense played awesome for the entirety of the game. And I thought you had a couple of guys that really stood out at really at every level of the defense. Uh, Will McDonald was, I mean, unbelievable in some of the things that he was doing throughout the game. I thought TJ Tampa had a really good game. Anthony Johnson had a really good game. And then Orion Vance was all over the field too. I mean, he led the team in tackles, had tackle for loss, forced a fumble, had some, you know, was, uh, was out there wreaking havoc all over the place. Uh, what, how much should we put stock into Iowa State's defense played really well and how much stock should go into the fact that Iowa's offense, I mean, is worse than atrocious. Like it, that was one of the worst college offenses I think I've ever seen in my life, especially in person. That, uh, <laughs> that, that awful. Um, I, I would say, I mean, you can still be excited about the defense because they looked better. I thought they looked better this week than they did last week where you can tell guys were more like Colby reader was substantially better this week than he was in week one. His angles were better. His tackling was better. Uh, I mean, he, he got a pick like mm-hmm. you, he was in better positions so guys like, I mean, TJ Tampa played awesome in coverage a, a lot of times on Arlen Bruce. And then Anthony Johnson played really well because a lot of times he would be matched up with Sam Laporta when he was kind of more in the box. So like they played really, really well. But yeah, I mean, let's wait because next week, Ohio was three and nine last year and they're one and one this season. They have a functioning offense, but they just got beat by like 38 to Penn State. So it's, you probably won't know the first good offense that Iowa State's probably going to see is going to be Baylor. Mm-hmm. So we're the fact that you can kind of warm up to it. I thought the thing that was encouraging about it is that they had, they were able to be multiple, you know, like Will McDonald didn't record a sack, but Will McDonald. And I think he only had, I'm looking at the stat line, you know, two tackles, but all of the plays, not all, a lot of the plays that were critical plays that happened, he forced Petrus out of the pocket to force him to someone else. Or he would actually drop into coverage. And the fact that he's six foot three with a six ten wingspan, he's taking up space there. Or on the reverse, after a second and one, they run a reverse, which is a stupid call in the first place. I have no idea why you're making that call, play call. And it was a reverse they looked like they'd practiced like twice right. before. It and just, so, just made no sense. But either way, Will McDonald able to just put his foot in the ground and redirect and almost run down Arlen Bruce in the backside, forcing him to flatten out more than he wanted to, allowing the defense to come to his aid and then get a TFL. And all of a sudden, now it's third and four. So like those, he was all over the place. So it was really encouraging. But yeah, like it's the same conversation we had last week going into the game. Iowa's offense is atrocious. Yeah, like a a, a tr- bad, bad, like really, really bad. Yeah, the play that he that Will McDonald made, where he uh, kind of faked rushing. They had two guys that were going to block him, and he just stopped and watched Petrus's eyes, and then put his big old paws up there and jumped about forty inches in the air and knocked it down. I mean, that's the kind of like that's the kind of stuff you want to talk about impact in the game. Oh my gosh, man! I mean, that's just being a that's just being a freak, dude. You know. And like they showed a highlight from the backside of that play, a replay of him 
to see how high he got off the ground, it's like those are the things where you're like, yeah, this guy's like a different breed of human being, you know, from everybody else that's out there on the football field. Uh, but he made a couple plays that were huge. I mean, the the one on the reverse you were talking about was was clutch. Then there was one where they had a third and like twenty, and they tried to run a draw to Gavin Williams. It might have been Gavin Williams' only carry of the day, and uh, everyone else dropped back, and Will chased him clear from the other side of the field and pushed him out like two yards short of the first down. And he probably would have gotten it if someone hadn't gotten right up to him to push him out of bounds. And like those are the kinds of things where you just sit there and you're like, dude, this guy is like, we're not going to see many players at Iowa State like that guy ever again, you know. One thing that I will say about the defense, though, is a thing that I want to see more of is team, teams are blocking Will McDonald and saying somebody else get to the quarterback. Yeah. And to this point, that hasn't really happened. So like last year and the years prior, Will has had either Jaquan Bailey or any Wazirike on the other side to be an additional pass rusher to make it so you can't. So like you can even if they're not double like not sending two guys to block will mcdonald you can his his best pass rush move is a speed rush up like trying to get past the uh the tackle just i can run there faster than you can so if you're a tackle you have to like one of the in order to prevent that you got to get a lot of depth well the problem is if you're single blocking him or you have no one else to help the, the natural counter to that is like the Dwight Freeney spin move is i'm gonna get the tackle moving really fast up the field because he's afraid that i'm gonna speed rush him and all of a sudden then i put my foot in the ground spin underneath him and take uh, go under because he's i'm by him well even if you're not double blocking will one of the things that they can do without another person is that they can slide the protection to his side so there's usually a zone side and a man side zone side meaning let's say he's on the the offense's right side defense's left side let's say that i'm an offense and I think that my left tackle can hold up one-on-one against J.R. Singleton or Isaiah Lee or uh, MJ Anderson, whoever it is. And I think, okay, so I'm going to play man. I'm going to have my man offensive line on the left side, meaning my left tackle takes a defensive end wherever he goes. My left guard takes whoever the second rusher is, defensive tackle, linebacker, whoever he is. And then my center guard and tackle are going to take the, the space to their right, whoever becomes the space to their right. Well, in the situation where Will was going to try and speed rush and kick back down and like spin back down or something like that, a, a natural counter to his speed rush. If you have a zone side to that side and know that the focus is that guy, your guard is also going to set way deeper and way faster than you think. So when he does spin, he's going to spin into a guard where if you have a interior pass rush or an other side pass rush that allows that you can't one-on-one cover the other guy, then you can't zone to him, and then you have to bring a tight end or a fullback in or something like that. So what I want to see is I want to see, and MJ Anderson had looked pretty good so far as kind of that other pass rusher. He might yeah. become that. but He's been close. He had, Well, and he did have a sack at the very end that just got negated by an offsides penalty. Which was BS, but whatever. Which was, yeah, bad, probably a bad penalty. He kicked the right tackle's ass too. But being able to have somebody on the other side be a pass rusher in pass rush situations that they can't just go, all right, Guard, tackle, your only job, look at number nine. If he, if you get somebody delivered to you, they twist or whatever, fine, block him, but your job is number nine. So I want to see somebody else get to the quarterback because that will allow Will to get to the quarterback. So MJ Anderson, like I said, has been probably the guy who's done that the best. Um, but again, we'll see. That's the one thing that I've not seen 
that has been a step back for this defense. All the I think corner play is better. Safety play is about the same. Um, the linebacker play has been eh, last week. I thought wasn't great. This week I thought was probably about as well as they played last year. And the defensive line play against the run, pretty good. They just don't have as much pass rush juice yet. And so that's the yep. thing I just want to see, like that noticing that they do they don't have as much pressure as what they got last year. One guy that really jumped out to me, I was surprised to see how much he played was Dominic Orange, the true freshman nose guard. Dude, that guy's going to be. He was really a massive good. human. He's a massive. He's going to be really, really good, dude. <laughs> like you can just see how uh, how he moves around when he gets out there. You're like, yeah, that, that guy's like a different breed of athlete. And I, you know, even Eli Rashid talked in the in during fall camp. He's like, that's like an SEC defensive lineman type of guy where you're three forty, six foot five as a redshirt freshman and you can run or true freshman and you can move you know inside in between the tackles so he's a guy that is going to be a really good player and played a lot for them on on saturday uh but yeah i think especially with the secondary it's just really hard to judge i mean i thought those guys again i like i texted you i think that tj tampa i thought had a had a fantastic game and like you said he forced the two turnovers um I thought him and Miles Purchase have both been pretty good at fitting the run game as well. Miles made one play where he got down and had to chop a guy's legs uh, on a, on a stretch play uh, right at the line of scrimmage was a really good tackle. But man, when Petrus is sailing the ball like ten yards out of bounds half the time, it's almost impossible to gauge whether or not the coverage was good because the throws were so horrendous. Yeah, it's, it's not even. It's not like you can even say, "All right, well, he's that would have been a contested catch because like the ball is." nine yards over his head that, that is yeah. not even within a catchable distance so the defensive back is just going to play that like i see that this ball is totally in no man's land i'm not even going to try i'm not going to bail them out with a pass interference so they play it more passive than they normally would be there were some times where it was like a truly open receiver and he sailed it in those situations you go oh, probably better play tight better to play tight coverage than loose coverage in that situation but yeah it's hard to judge truly how good they were because of how bad Iowa's offense is. And the fact that there's no real receiver that's a threat. I mean, Arlen Bruce is a good player. He's probably an NFL player. But it's there's nobody else that... There's the two tight ends and Arlen Bruce. And if you were to take any of those other guys and put them on Iowa State's roster, they probably don't see the field. Yeah. And even Arlen Bruce, I think, might not be... Yeah, he he would probably think, I, I he would like not Arlen be a Bruce, primary target, you know. He'd be yeah, he might play, but he would be yeah. the he would be the second second he he and Jalen Noel are pretty similar players. Yeah. So like you have those two that are kind of equivalent. So but but that's their best offensive threat. You know, they don't have a Xavier Hutchinson. Even when whoever's healthy is healthy, they just they they don't have offensive talent and they have a quarterback. Like this is again we talked about with Dockerman like I would be sick if I'm an Iowa fan today, dude. Man, because it, also, this is this is like the definition of insanity at this point, you know. And it, I can't believe they put Petrus back out there in the second half. I couldn't believe it. And you got to think, you know, I, I I've seen some stuff on Twitter that people are like, I love Kirk Ferentz, and Kirk Ferentz has done so much good for this university. But this is like a turning point, you know. Yeah. Like, how much are you gonna? Something has to change. And this is a thing that I was thinking about just. You know, because Farron said that uh, Petrus hasn't had enough help to be able to give him a fair shake. Like, which is, okay, let's take that argument at face value. 
So what that means is that everyone else is executing so poorly or the depth is not good enough to be able to have backups come in and play at an, a respectable level to give your quarterback a fair shake. So there's three possible avenues of fault here. And what he's doing by defending Petrus is he's throwing his son and himself under the bus because situation number one is you say Spencer Petrus has not played well. We're going to go with Alex Padilla, move on. Then that means the subtext of that is we're calling good enough plays. We have good enough talent. This guy's just not executing. So Ferentz and Ferentz are fine. Let's say then, though, that he's not getting enough talent or he's not getting enough help to make a justifiable play. So you're defending Spencer Petrus, but if he's not getting enough help, that means the offense is executing poorly. Uh, whose fault is that? Right. That's the coordinator's job. You know, mm-hmm. like it's not it, it preparation is part uh, offensive coordinator is not just calling plays on Saturdays. It's preparing everyone to be able to run plays. So if you're not getting enough help, but because of execution, then it's your son's fault. If you're not getting enough help because you don't have enough talent, then that's your fault. So by saying we're sticking with Petrus, he's throwing his son more under the bus and more under the bus because the offense isn't executing around him. Like that's the justification. So it is a, it's defending the quarterback, but hurting the reputation of your sons. Cause if you substitute Petrus and Padilla comes in and the, even as a respectable offense, like just, okay. Then you go, okay, well, the offense is fine. The depth is a little bit bad. Brian's going to be fine. You pull the heat off of Brian, thereby pulling the heat off yourself. But like by doubling down on Petrus, you just invite more and more problem for yourself. And it's unarguable that it is the worst offense in college football. I think they're like 84 yards a game. It was, yeah, 100 and 150 or something like that, 160 total yards average per game. The next worst is like 235. So like they're the worst by a considerable margin. And I read it. I read in one of Doc's stories, they're averaging like 2.7 yards per play, which is the lowest by a considerable margin for any team since like 2009. It's unarguable that that offense is awful. And so there has to be a cause for it. Offenses don't just become bad. They're not just bad offenses. Right. So is it bad play calling? Is it bad personnel or is it bad execution or some combination of all three? And again, by by sticking with Petrus, you're saying that it's bad execution and bad play and or bad play calling, which comes on to Brian Ferentz. So like, this is just, this is a no win situation right now. And I feel bad for a guy like Petrus who's, you know, granted it's your job to be better, but at the same time, like he's got a blowtorch on his head. Like what's he going to do? You know, and from someone... everything I've heard, he's a stand-up guy, like an yeah. awesome, awesome guy to be around. And that's how like a lot of the teammates will be like, you know, you don't see what he does in practice and you don't see what he's like as a person, which it's, it's hard to watch one of your friends. Who's a really nice human just get shit on. But at mm-hmm. the same time, when it's justifiable that you get shit on, it's, it's hard. Like you have this double thought in your head of being like, man, Spencer's such a good dude. Like, I hate that he's doing poorly and I don't want anyone else to think that he's doing poorly, but at the same time, you got to do better. You know, yeah, like it's, it's time, such damn, a weird he's situation. Really, yeah, it's like, damn, it's like, damn, I don't want him people to be shitting on him because he's playing poorly, but holy shit, he's playing poorly. Right. <laughs> you know? It's, a, it's yeah. a, just a no-win situation for everybody. And I, yeah, it's got to be, it's well, got to be Jay- hard to watch. I told Jay last night, I was like, dude, it's sad on some level. Like, I mean- 
it, I might feel a little different because Iowa State won, and it's like now you want Iowa to win because it makes Iowa State look better if Iowa keeps winning. That defense is so damn good, dude. That's like a championship-level defense. They could hold teams to like 10 points a game and go 5-7 and seven because their offense sucks so bad. Yeah, and, <laughs> which, would, and, which would be sad. And with this offensive personnel and with Petrus in the field, you don't. there's not a perceptible way forward. Yeah. You know? Like, it's not like you can be like, oh, you know, we clean this, this, clean up this and clean up that. We're going to be fine. No. You clean up this, you clean up that, you're going to have 180 yards instead of 150 yards. And you're still going to suck. And that's where I say when I, you know, I said at the beginning that the, that drive felt like a moment. It feels like Iowa needed to lose. This is my, from my analysis perspective of if they're ever going to change, they needed to lose to some of these teams that they've been beaten every year. Like they almost needed to lose to an Iowa state, lose to Minnesota, lose to Nebraska, probably not, but you know, possibility. Uh, someone that it's like was going to piss the fan base off enough that you can't sit there and say, well, what's it matter? We went 10 and two, you know, yeah. like had to have his hand forced on some level. And that's where I felt like that drive. It was like, that was the moment where like the rivalry took a total turn of like, they had to stand there and recognize the fact that Iowa state had just done what they do, you know, and match that and be like, that had to be an Oh shit moment for them. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's that playing with fire, you know, like you yeah. put your, you tell your, you know, whatever four-year-old, Hey, do not touch the stove. Do not touch the stove. Absolutely. Don't touch the stove, but then they don't get enough burned by it. Like they can kind of flirt with and go, ha ha ha. This is a fun yeah. game. I get attention when I do this, but then they just nick the stove one time and go, Oh, that's actually really, that hurts a lot. Yeah. It, they are at, I think they finally, yeah, they touched the stove where they were like, you know, again, it's a good point of being like, well, we can defend this decision because we won. And they were 10 and two last year. They had won the game last week. They're playing, you know, they could use, we're playing field position. It's complimentary football. We just need a leadership or what, like you can use all those excuses, but that unit lost you the game. The defense, you would be hard-pressed to find. I mean, okay, so Iowa State had 313 total yards. But they also, the defense gave gave the ball back to the Iowa offense four or five different times. Two with block punts, which don't, for whatever reason, count as turnovers. And three on actual turnovers. They gave the offense five turnover chances. When's the last they, time you saw a team have, saw a team block two punts and lose the football game? In the, in I've never minus seen it in my life. I've in never seen territory. it in my life. Yes. And that's why, like, I, your odds of winning when you block two punts have to be damn near 100%, like 95%. I have never heard of that in my life ever happening. And that's it's, where, like, yeah. You, yeah. you have to, I mean, you have to ch- do something different. If they trot Spencer Petrus out again with basically the same offensive set, I think so. The season tickets that's were borderline. That's borderline malpractice to that kid in so my mind. It's horrible for him, you know. Yeah, and and if they change awful situations, if they change something and they run out when and they try and run, you know, two tight ends and a fullback, and they're going to run like true straight up pro sets. They're not going to put him in the gun. They're going to run him under center all the time, and that they're going to make it so he throws eleven passes in a game. Okay, I, I can understand you, that. If you want to be right by that kid, I think you you give Padilla a chance at this point. And if he goes out there and plays like shit, then you can put Petrus back in, you know, but it's like, 
I just I think to keep putting him out there in the position that they're in at this point is uh, unfair to him at this at, at this juncture. All right, last thing, I'll let you go. Scott Frost fired as Nebraska's head coach yesterday, uh, 20 days before his buyout was set to be cut in half. Uh, were you surprised to see the Cornhuskers let their head coach go after uh, – actually, real quick shout-out to uh, Steve Kempt, who's one of our guys here at Cyclone Fanatic, does a lot of stuff for us behind the scenes. His nephew was the quarterback for Georgia Southern. Uh, not often that I'm going to applaud anybody for going into Memorial Stadium and beating Nebraska, but uh, you know, kudos to them, Clay Helton and his team for being able to go in there and get the win. Uh, but that was the straw that broke the camel's back, I think, out west. Yeah, and I, I'm surprised. I'm not surprised that he got fired. I'm just surprised they couldn't wait not even three days. weeks to do it. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess someone someone had to have ponied up something you know you have to mess up pretty royally for them to be like yeah dude you getting out of here right now is worth seven and a half million dollars to us like that's how how somebody important it is to get you the hell out of here somebody had to have ponied up that money because i'm sure trev alberts when he was like considering that he probably called you know whoever is at berkshire hathaway who's a big nebraska fan yeah warren Warren buff somebody who's like hey if we get rid of him now, we owe him an extra seven and a half million. And that fan goes, do it. I'll cut the check. You know, like yeah. that's it had to have come from somewhere. Um, the other thing that is kind of a necessary, we have to mention it because it's around is there's a, there some reporter or reporters are saying the way Lars it was Anderson, phrased. Formerly say, Sports Illustrated. Yeah. So the, the phrase was, it's only a matter of time before Matt Campbell becomes a head coach at Nebraska. Okay. There's two sides to this argument. One side or two sides of this situation. It's like a relationship. Both people have to want to have this happen before there's actually a relationship. Nebraska has a huge crush on Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell, from all intents and purposes, by every indication that we've heard, we've had for every single job search, not remotely interested in Nebraska. Now, we don't know that as far as inside sources, but saying that Matt Campbell will inevitably be the head coach is like someone saying that person's going to be my girlfriend without ever communicating with the girlfriend to see if there's a reciprocal interest in that. You're putting the horse in front of the, or the cart in front of the horse. Yeah. So of course, and I mean, you phrased it pretty well. Like you would be an idiot. If Trev Howard's would be an idiot not to have Matt Campbell at or near the top of his list. Yeah. Of course they're going to be on the list and they're going to, try and throw a bucket of money at him in the same way that every other school has thrown a bucket of money on him. Going to get a contract renegotiation. Jamie's going to have to respond to that bucket of money in some form or fashion. Like this is the same song and dance that goes on every year, but the certainty with which that report came out does not match the certainty of a situation because it's been only a few hours in order for that to have been true. They would have had to text Matt Campbell that night coming back from Iowa city and say, Hey, we're going to fire Scott Frost. Do you want to be the head coach? And he goes, yep. Like that's the only way that that would have happened for that report to be substantive. And that then gets leaked to someone else. Like logistically the certainty with which that report came out cannot exist. There's no way that would exist. Right. Uh, And again, I I don't want to sound like too high horsey, but there's, it just, that does not seem remotely plausible. If I'm Nebraska, I'm focusing a lot of energy on when Panthers eventually fire Matt rule or Lance Leipold down at Kansas. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. And I think 
the thing that I would say too is if I'm Matt Campbell, I don't want to go to Nebraska. I I grew up a Nebraska fan. I can tell you right now, if I'm if I was consulting or a, and I was advising a head coach that was potentially going to take that job, I would tell him not to take it. That thing why is, has why been, is that? It, it has been a soap opera for 20 years, almost. The thing that drives me crazy the most about Nebraska, for the I couldn't watch Scott Frost teams because they did so much obnoxiously stupid ass shit, you know, and not just the players, but the coach. Again, like I can't watch a team where the players and the coaches both are bordering on incompetent at times in their decision-making, you know, and that drove me insane. But man, like I think back to like when Mike Riley was there, Mike Riley was just in over his head. Bo Pelini was just a dickhead. And that's the only only reason that he got fired. You know, Bill Callahan tried to do something that was never going to work at Nebraska and completely changed the way that they approached everything. There has never been a week or a month or any of that stuff that has gone by in almost 20 years where Nebraska did not have something off the field, have something going on inside of their building, some sort of drama between the offensive coordinator and the head coach, between the court, the head coach and the quarterback, between the head coach and whoever the hell else, man. Until they figure out a way to make it where every single week doesn't seem like it's like an episode of Love Island or some stupid shit like that, they're not going to win. They won't. Because the culture is so deeply rooted there of just complete chaos. Because there's so many cooks in the kitchen. Because there's so many people that are pulling things in different directions. The best example I have to un- to understand this, look at what Iowa State has done. Nebraska could learn a lot from a place like Iowa State, where the- Nebraska has no identity, top to bottom, as, as an athletic department, of what they want their rep- uh, university athletic department to represent, what they want that to mean for their institution. It's let's go out and hire big names. Let's go out and get people who are going to come in and put their stamp on the thing. And it makes it to where the people are bigger than the thing. And that should not be how it is. It should be the program is bigger than everyone. The program needs an identity that can be carried across different groups of people where someone is a steward of what the program is, not the program is a vehicle for what that person is. That is my biggest issue with Nebraska. That's why I say they will not succeed until they figure out a way to clean up all of those other things because you put people in no-win situations and everything just becomes chaotic. And then all of a sudden it's not about the football anymore. It's about the other shit. And that's why they can't win. And speaking specifically about the football itself, and thank you, your the that soapbox was wonderful. But I was just I was keeping it real. Yeah, but the uh, the football aspect of it, Matt Campbell's stated goal and has always been he wants to win a championship or championships at uh, anywhere. That's what his primary goal is, which is why like USC was such an attractive offer because they're going to throw him a you know an ass load of money. In order, and you have for, all the resources in the world. You have all the resources yeah. in the world, and you're in a conference, and you're in a situation that would enable you to get to the playoff because you're going to the Pac-12. You can win the conference if you're dominant in that conference. You get to the playoff because of name, reputation, whatever. Two things that just football-wise seem to be negatives about taking the Nebraska job over what's with Iowa State. The conference or the playoff expanding to 12 teams means that a it's likely going to get stacked in the SEC's favor. We know that just because they're going to have a strength of schedule element and perhaps the Big Ten's favor. But at the same time, that means the Big Ten brands like Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, like those are the ones that could potentially get 
a hey they were good in, invitation but the easier way to get out yeah right yeah, the, the easier way to get to the playoff once it expands to 12 teams is win your conference which conference is easier to win the big 10 or the big 12 right. probably the big 12 not because of anything else but you have one ohio state you're gonna have to beat ohio state every single year to get in the playoff and if you want to get in the playoff let's say you go 12 and 0 in the big 10 west and you go to the play ohio state and you lose 45 to 3 do you think you have the benefit of the doubt anymore no, you do not. So which is an easier conference to win at just gen, uh, uh, all things held equal, uh, a 10 and two team that is a runner up in the big 10 or a 10 and two team. That's a runner up in the big 12. Like what, which of those teams is likely more or more likely to get there? Well, probably the big 12. Now, the second thing is program building. When I, he would Campbell took over in 2016, it was a mess. And he yeah. had to revamp recruiting. He had to revamp facilities. He had to revamp everything. It was a mess. He has gotten it to the point where it's not a mess, where you're getting the Deckers and the Dominic Oranges and you're getting the, the Cartavius Nortons and you're getting these big recruits and you're able to, you have a program that is functioning now. If you were to go to Nebraska, you're putting yourself back in 2016 mold of working super hard for yes. four years to build a foundation that you can start doing what you want. So do you have both things, the capacity to win a championship and enough of a revenue or, or enough of a, a situation that will give you the time to build a program that you want, like what he's gotten at Iowa state, Nebraska does not have those things. Like, are there programs in my mind that would be legitimate problems? If Notre Dame ever came calling, I would be worried like for Matt Campbell to leave Notre Dame. If Ohio state, they would never, but if Ohio state came calling USC, those were legitimate problems because of what the, they provide both of those situations. I don't think Nebraska does that. Like it, when you take the, the goggles off of like the Nebraska colored goggles, you take those off. I don't think that it really fits because of how, because of the shape that it is in and has been in for a really long time. And that's why I say like a guy like Lance Leipold would, I mean, he's at Kansas. Like, that's like an eight-year rebuild to get and where, you're, where we're and talking he's, about. And he's only a year and a half in, so he hasn't. Yeah, it's the sunk cost. He's not thing, deep like, enough in that. Yeah, that you right. can't like leave. You know, he's not. And, that, and, he, and he's not. Yeah, he's he's not seven years, and they're starting to about to crack it. Where do I want to restart all this work? Yeah, and th I was talking to my dad last night. I told him I was like, dude, like this is going to re require a complete and total teardown of the football department and a complete restructuring of how you do everything. And like what your mindset of what you want to do on a given day, it can't be about, we're going to go and win championships. It can't be about all those things. It's like, we're going to come in and do every little thing correct every day until we can do that. We're not going to talk about championships or any of those kinds of things because we can't even prove that we can do every little thing right on Tuesday, let alone go and beat Oklahoma on Saturday you know and that's where again like that was what my problem was it's like you can tell they don't care about the details because they lose in the details every week you know and that's why they lose every close game is because they don't care about the details of winning they just focus on winning and just focusing on winning and the result doesn't get you anywhere you know and that's where it's going to require from Nebraska fans perspective, a complete rewiring of their minds of what they expect on any given Sunday. Right now they just want them to win. I can't even watch them because even if they win, I sit there and I'm like, that team's undisciplined. They don't do the little things and they are, you can clearly see that they are not focused on the details of being able to beat good football teams. And that's why they can't sustain any level of success 
It's why they struggle with North Dakota. It's why they lose to Georgia Southern. It's why they lose every year to Northwestern Iowa and Wisconsin. And until those things change, Nebraska football will stay be the same thing that it's been. And it's hollow. It's empty. Empty calories for Nebraska football. Everything. I feel like it's a good one to end on. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you guys again next week, hopefully after another win over Ohio. Sorry we didn't break down the Bobcats for you today. We were uh, a little bit focused on what was going on over the weekend. So we'll talk to you guys again soon. Peace.